0: Hello and welcome to Jurid Radio. My name is Jesse Gutman and I'll be your host. This podcast is aimed to advance education through the study of the practice of law and legal rights. Today we're going to hear from Ruth Goba, she is the ED of the newly formed Black Legal Action Centre, a legal clinic in Toronto focusing on the needs of the black community, the African Canadian community. Her words are very important and her varied experience and wisdom is in part why she was selected to give the keynote address at the 2019 Law Union Conference. Have a listen.
1: It is my absolute pleasure and honor to introduce our keynote speaker uh, at this year's conference. We are tremendously lucky to have Ruth Goba here uh, with us tonight. As many of you know, she is over, She has overseen and is overseeing the opening of Ontario's Black Legal Action Center. Not only that, she uh, was doing it, I don't know, maybe a month before the budget cuts or like days, yeah, just perfect timing really. Um, So she is not only someone with a wealth of expertise and experience, but somebody who is very, very busy, and so we are very lucky that she's uh, here tonight to share some of that experience. I'm going to just... I'm just gonna give you some highlights from this CV, okay? In case you're in case you're wondering. Like, she was the provincial territorial expert on physician-assisted dying. She has been on the legal committee of the Women's Legal Action Fund. She articled at Arch Disability Law Center. More recently, she was named um, Interim Chief Commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. She was cross-appointed to the Human Rights Legal Support Center in 2017. She's basically the smartest person probably you'll ever meet. And um, I'm just thrilled that she's here. So let's welcome Ruth to the stage.
2: Thank you very much. It's an absolute honor to be here. And I thank Kate for organizing it and for being extremely patient because, as she said, we have just opened up, Black the Black Legal Action Centre has just opened up in early March, I guess, so things have been extremely busy and um, a little bit scary as well with the cats. But uh, nonetheless, I'm really happy to be here and honoured, so thank you. So I thought that I would start by just talking a little bit about Black and what we do, and then move into issues that I think that we could work together on and identify, identifying issues of anti-black racism. And so I hope that this is somewhat helpful to you in the work that you all do. The corporation was actually formed in, in September of 2017 and I wasn't hired until June of 2018 From about July till February of this year we were working with Legal Aid Ontario to build, thank you very much, to build, it is very hot in here, (laughs) to build our offices and they were finally ready on February 25th but until that time I actually worked from my basement at home alone with my personal cell phone (laughs) and that was how We started, that was how we started work, hired, we hired an office manager in November and she also worked from home and then we hired three wonderful lawyers who are here tonight, Farida Adam, Patricia Sullivan, and Nana Yanful, who also worked from home until February. (laughs) It was quite something. We are a specialty community legal clinic and we serve the entire province, our mandate is to combat individual and systemic anti-black racism. And so I thought that I would give you a definition of that. And I've taken one from the City of Toronto's Action Plan to confront anti-black racism. And what it says is that anti-black racism is policies and practices embedded in Canadian institutions that reflect and reinforce beliefs, attitudes, prejudice, stereotyping and discrimination that is directed at people of African descent and is rooted in their unique history and experience of enslavement and colonization in Canada. And so that is the lens with which we do our work and the issues that come to us all have an element of anti-black racism in them. We are a clinic that provides direct service, so we provide direct service to clients who call us, as well as the traditional work done by specialty clinics, which includes systemic advocacy, community development, public legal education, and test cases. I'm going to read you our vision, and I do that because I think it's important and it grounds the work that we do. The Black Legal Action Center was created to challenge and eradicate individual and systemic anti-black racism, Our vision is a society where anti-black racism is named and meaningfully addressed, where the humanity and dignity of black people are centered, where the laws and the legal system are reflective of the real experiences of black people and where racial equality and full participation of all black people in society is achieved. And so, like the definition of anti-black racism, we work from a lens that recognizes the legacy of colonialism and slavery and segregation that manifests today in different forms, such as criminalization, heightened surveillance, scrutiny, prisons. And to do this work across the province, we have six staff. (laughs) So it's a tall order. We were supposed to have seven, but the provincial cuts have put us in a spending freeze, and so we have been precluded from hiring a community legal worker, and we're waiting like everyone else to see what the outcome of the cuts is on our clinic. And we know that you have already, you have all also probably been impacted as well. But I think regardless of what happens, I think we're all determined to continue to do the work that we have set out to do. Last spring... Our board of directors commissioned a needs assessment to kind of assist with the development of our work. And what it revealed was that that there is no legal issue that people face that is not exacerbated or worsened by anti-black racism or the failure to acknowledge the realities of black life in, in Ontario or Canada. And I just think of an example that I've seen, you know, firsthand is a black woman who is experiencing issues with her landlord is threatened. She can't go to the board because the landlord threatens to call CAS if she goes. And that is, you know, the impact for her of the landlord calling CAS. And the threat to her is significant as a black woman and for her black child. But in addition to that, so that's just, you know, kind of one example. In addition to the needs assessment, our desire was to wait to hear from our community and hear from them because we have a phone line, hear from them about what they needed and what the calls were about. phone line has been open since early March, and so we're slowly kind of getting a better picture of what's actually happening in the province and, who's co- and why people are calling. We receive calls from across Ontario, although most of the calls have been coming from the GTA. Our goal is to ensure that this clinic is not a Toronto-centric clinic. We heard in the needs assessment that, you know, we heard from people all over. We heard from people in Ottawa, we heard from people in Windsor, we heard from people in Hamilton. And what we heard was that they want us to come to them and hear them and see them and understand their issues and not impose a Toronto-centric view on the issues that they are facing as a a diverse black population across Ontario. And we also want to go and meet them where they are. That that is also something that we are working on given the funding cuts and the, the challenges we're having around budgeting and understanding exactly what our budget will be. I think one challenge we face with respect to managing expectations in our own community is the issue of financial eligibility. As a legal aid clinic we are of course limited to assisting people with low or no income. What we know and what you know is that anti-black racism cuts across lines, cuts across all lines, all class lines just like gender discrimination. Racial profiling for example can happen to a young black child walking in a primarily racialized neighborhood or it can happen to a lawyer in a legal lounge, it doesn't matter. Um, And so we are challenged, I think, in how to figure out to be effective for our community in that regard, but also meeting our obligations with respect to our funder. And it's especially challenging for our community, I think, when they call and it's a meritorious case and we're not necessarily able to assist. I'd like you to keep that in mind (laughs) for all the lawyers who do work out here. Our hope is to be able to work with other clinics across the province and host satellite clinics. As I said, even though our outreach to date has been limited, I think I think that we'll eventually, we'll, we'll eventually get there. With that background out of the way, what I thought would be helpful to share in this address, I guess, is ways that that is important to share with you, I guess, some ideas on how I think we can help you deal with issues of anti-black racism in your daily work. And although I would like to be able to say that our, that our six staff at Black will be able to er- eradicate anti-Black racism, we realize that that is not possible, that we cannot do it alone, and that we need others to challenge it alongside us, and that's where you all come in. We always get asked, you know, how can we help? What can we do to work with you? We're excited about your work, and so I'm just going to give you some kind of ideas and thoughts about how you can do that and I'm going to begin by asking you to challenge anti-black racism when you see it and I'm going to give examples that we are recognizing or patterns that we are seeing when the issue of anti-black racism is raised and um, I've been doing this work for about 20 years and, I, and I've seen this kind of narrative emerge and now we at Black see it in the calls that we get when there's an accusation of anti-black racism And I see the narrative as indicative of the depth of anti-black racism and how ingrained stereotypes, which stem from our history of slavery and oppression, um, are of black people in our society. And I'm going to share three examples from different areas, employment, education and policing, but the narrative that emerges from them, as we do our work, is eerily similar, and you'll see what I mean as I, if I kind of give you examples. So, in employment, we typically get calls from people who are struggling at work, who are worried about losing their jobs, or maybe already lost their jobs. People who are on stress leave. We usually hear that they've been employed for a long time, typically with no issues related to performance. We hear that this was the case until they raised an issue of discrimination. And that would be disparate treatment, excess scrutiny, failure to get a promotion when they thought they were entitled to a promotion, they were superior, you know, had more experience than the person that was given the promotion, an offensive comment made by a colleague, whatever form it takes. We hear from them, and this is general, and I can certainly talk about specifics, but we hear from them that the allegation is either not de- dealt with or is investigated by the employer, and no finding of discrimination is made. The person accused is usually defensive and adamant that anything that anything that they have done or said is in no way related to race, and the employer can't, you know, imagine that there are problems in the workplace because they have all sorts of policies and diversity policies and anti-racism policies and workplace harassment policies that are adhered to. So the narrative in employment typically when we get calls, is one where the employee making the accusation is not a team player, is aggressive. Others in the office are fearful of them and fearful of their temper. The employee themselves has created a toxic environment through their attitude and general failure to get along with others in the office, that they're just being too sensitive and these are often the attributes that are attributed to people that we hear from, they're the characteristics. And I can give you a specific example of a woman who worked in a social service agency for 14 years, no issues at all, was promoted along the way. A new manager came on board and demanded that different standards from her and her reporting to him. And she, he didn't demand those same reporting requirements from her equals, none of whom were black. So she raised it with him and she asked why. He immediately denied that there was a problem. The relationship kind of became obviously very tense. She complained to HR and they spoke to the manager who said that her attitude was really problematic. And what ended up happening was that the differential treatment took a back seat to the interpersonal problems. And he said that he was unsafe because she was so aggressive and her attitude was so bad. She ended up on stress leave and no longer works there. He still does. So the narrative was again about hers about the stereotypes about her being aggressive and angry and all of those things Um, in education our typical typical scenario we see is one that impacts child and parent where a black child is bullied or targeted by a principal or teacher and with bullying what we see for the child is that there's often a failure to believe the child and an equalization of the behaviors of the bullier and the bullied the actions of the bullier are equated with the actions of the child who's being bullied. And there's disbelief sometimes, and it's not always conscious. Sometimes it is, I think, that the black child could be, deli- uh, could be bullied. The discipline is that applied equally to both children, and sometimes even just the black child. If the children react to name-calling or taunting, they're deemed to be violent, aggressive, and they're disciplined. An example that I can give you is an exa- as a young boy who was an A student, never had any issues. The allegation was that he had made other kids jump up and down to see if they had change in their pockets. And for that, with no previous disciplinary history, he was suspended pending expulsion. Now, this was a few years ago, but the characterization of him was, and he was a pretty, like, pretty small kid actually, but the characterization was that he was big and scary and violent and that the kids were afraid of him and therefore he had to leave the school. When parents get involved, they often are seen as harassing the school administrators. Parents often reach out to us because they can't manage the situation themselves. Their concerns when raised um, with school administrators are ignored or brushed off and not dealt with according to the policies that are in place. So we get tons of calls where kids are suspended and the parents get no notice, where the police are called on a child without parental notice or without anyone present, which I've seen personally many times. And for those of you who have kids, I have three young children. Like, imagine your child being interrogated by the police without your knowledge I mean, without you being there, how angry you would be and how frustrated you would be. And imagine if you're a parent of a young black boy and the typical fraught relationships that young black men have with police, how you would feel about that. So but the the frustration that parents feel and express as this is happening is viewed as harassment and often trespass orders are issued. And just like in employment, the uh, accuser or parent is viewed as harassing, problematic, toxic in the school, aggressive, someone to be feared. And these again, from our perspective, go back to our history, right? To 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 slavery. Policing is one that you all know about, probably more because it's been so public. And this is a uh, particularly because of the issue of carding and street checks in Toronto. And typically it's a situation where a black person is stopped by the police for no reason. And we know there is a high probability of this because of all the reports that have come out recently. The Ontario Human Rights Commission and a racial profiling investigation by the Toronto Star. As well as anecdotal evidence from our community that we hear. Much of the backlash around carding resulted in education about your rights when you were stopped by the police. And what what to do when you have to answer questions and when you can walk away. But the reality for black people is that this really can't be for most people, right? Like, it's not a realistic option because their failure to follow instruction or question authority is viewed as a threat, and particularly when young black men are involved. You'll recall the case of the Neptune 4. They were ironically on their way to an after-school learning program in a the, in the, in the TCHC complex in 2011. The case is still going on. They were stopped by the police. They tried to exercise their rights by refusing to comply with police demands to identify themselves, which is what they had been told to do. That resulted in an assault and their arrest. The charges, when the video came to light, were dropped. But the police officer in the disciplinary hearing said that he was scared. And these are police officers with teenage, young teenage kids, armed police officers who were a part of the Toronto Anti-Violence Intervention Strategy, carrying guns and he said he was absolutely terrified of these boys. So the narrative is the same in policing. The individual posed a threat, was aggressive, the armed officer's life was in danger, and so aggression was necessary. We hear these narratives day after day, and it's easy for us, I think, to see a systemic issue in that the theme that emerges is constantly, no matter what the area, and it's the same in child welfare with parents, right, of black people being a danger, of being aggressive, overly sensitive, wanting attention or special treatment. And I can tell you that I sat with the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario for a period of time, and whenever race cases came before me, this was the narrative that emerged that I saw from the applicant and the respondent. The impact of this on black people and on us is to silence us. The narrative is often internalized and we fear the repercussions of raising issues of anti-black racism as it seems like it is the worst-ism to raise. And even this week, Christy Blatchford, in an article, one of the quotes from her article is, when they come for you, whether it is allegations of sexual assault or sexual harassment, or even worse, racism, or worst of all, because there is a hierarchy in racism too, anti-black racism, you are done like dinner. And so we know that once the issue is raised, our workplace, for example, will never be the same. We know that whoever we address will be offended by us we don't want to be labeled as angry or not being a team player or a person with their chip on a shul- with a chip on their shoulder or aggressive or toxic when our reactions our reactions to issues that we deal with in most aspects of our lives, probably in every aspect, and they are human reactions. So when you represent clients individually, it may seem like there was a performance issue in employment, or a black child was truly engaged in in bad behavior, or the person stopped by police was aggressive or a danger, but I'd like you to think about it a little bit differently, and I'd like you to kind of think about this narrative, and how and why the individual you are representing is being characterized in the way that they are. And I think that's really important for those of you who are working with the black community and representing them in issues of employment and wrongful dismissals and all of those things that, all of those areas that you work in. But the issues we see are everywhere, not just in places that are not necessarily progressive or in the criminal law. And to be honest, it's actually more difficult to challenge people like us, who are doing good work, like all all of us. And over the many years that I've worked in this field, some of the most challenging cases have been with more liberal organizations and, and people because we are the good guys, right? When you're doing the right thing or believe you're doing the right thing or want to do the right thing, it's really hard to be told otherwise and that the impact of what you were doing is not what you thought or intended. And I can tell you that the most difficult training, human rights training, I've done lots of training in my life, and the most difficult training I ever did um, or conducted was with people who worked in social housing, who were alleged to be discriminating against people with disabilities. And they were furious with me for kind of suggesting that there was an equity in how they were managing the housing and that already vulnerable people were being impacted. And they actually said to me, how dare you? You know, I'm trying to help people, that's why I do this work. And the manager who arranged the training said that he'd never seen a reaction that, like that. And I think it's because it, it strikes people that they're being told that they're bad, right? When you tell them that they're doing something wrong and they think they're doing well. And because it's so ingrained, um, we have a lot of learning and unlearning to do. And so I'd like us and, and all of you to pay attention to how each of us deals with it when we see it and hear it and look at how lawyers deal with it in our own spaces. And I'd like you to be conscious of this, not only in the work you do for your clients, but in your workspaces as well, right, in your workplaces as well. What's important, too, is to be conscious of how anti-black issues are, in the words of the UN Permanent Forum for the People of African Descent, obscured by the terms diversity and visible minority. In the example they use, the percentage, they, they give an example in a report that they did, or in a, in a, yeah, in a report that they did, And they talked about issues of the realities of black people being obscured. And they said that the percentage of racialized children living in poverty across Canada is 18%. But if you disaggregated the data, for black children the number was 33%. And so when this type of analysis is done, and it's done, for instance, in workplaces, you may very well have diversity but black people don't always figure into that diversity. And so I would also ask you to be conscious of that. And I think the rhetoric around diversity often obscures black people's experiences. It erases us from the narrative. Even in social justice frameworks, we get put into categories of racialized people when the, when the realities of our existence is actually quite different from a lot of other racialized people. And I can tell you another example, that when Justin Trudeau announced his cabinet in 2015, and it was hailed for gender parity and diversity, which was great, I happened to be in a meeting with a black organization that was participating in the development of an anti that that um, sorry was precluded from participating in the development of an anti-racism strategy in their workplace. And I want you to think about that for a minute as well. Right? Imagine a policy being developed on gender and women being excluded, or a policy being you know, developed on disability and people with disabilities being excluded. And this was a group of black people in the workplace who were excluded from the development of the anti-racism policy in the workplace. So we were in this meeting, and Justin Trudeau announced his cabinet. You'll remember the line, oh, this is so great, there's all this gender, how come? He said, well, it's 2015, it's reflective of Canada. And we all looked at each other, and we looked at the cabinet, because we were all, of course, everybody has phones, right? And there wasn't one black person in the cabinet. It was an example of diversity excluding us, or being excluded from the talk about diversity. So I'd like you to think about your firms and the work that you do, the artic- articling positions. If you if you end up hiring black people, do you provide opportunities to mentor them? Think about how unions deal with anti-black racism allegations. And I will say that race is a very, very complicated issue. And it's complicated for us too. It's not just complicated for people who are not black. And many times, people are afraid to be labeled as racist or even to ask questions for fear of saying the wrong thing. And this is particularly true in more progressive settings. But I will say that nothing will change if this continues. And so I think if you think you identify it, identify anti-Black racism somehow in the work that you're doing, I would encourage you, if you're unsure or don't know exactly how to raise it, to reach out. Don't hesitate to contact us at Black. One of our goals at Black is to be a resource not only for our community, but for others too, including the legal profession. On our website, uh, we have a quote by James Baldwin that says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And I think if we are too nervous or afraid to deal with the realities of anti-black racism, then -hmm. none of us will ever be able to really challenge it. And with that, I'm gonna take you back to our vision. And I'm going to create our vision. And I'm going to say our vision is a society where anti-black racism is named and meaningfully addressed, where the humanity and dignity of black people are centered, where the laws and the legal system are reflective of the real experiences of black people, and where racial equity and full participation of all black people in society is achieved. Thank you very much.
0: So to pick up where Ruth left off, the Black Legal Action Centre can be reached at Black Legal Action Centre, that centre spelt the Canadian way, C-E-N-T-R-E dot and they can be reached by phone 1-877-736-9406. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to reach out to Jared the podcast at JaredFoundation at gmail.com. Follow us, J-U-R underscore E-D, at Twitter. Follow us on any of the podcast possibilities. Really, we're all over the place. And if you have a place that we're not, let us know, and we'll go there. And if you're so inclined, why not rate us? It'll help other people find the program as well. And did I say you could get involved too? Yeah, that's a possibility. Just message us. Looking forward to chatting with you soon.